Coming up on Tech Nation, issues large and small, depending on your perspective. First, long COVID. Yes, it's real. I'll speak with one biotech working on a possible treatment. Then cancer, or rather the delivery of cancer medicines. Another biotech working to make treatments faster, more direct, less invasive. Finally, California burning. No surprise there, but what about the aging infrastructure managed by Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E? It's caused many of the most destructive wildfires. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2014, I was able to speak with Dr. Savante Pabo, the author of Neanderthal Man in Search of Lost Genomes. I asked him, we used to wonder whether Neanderthals ever interbred with modern humans. Is that debate over? Yes, I would say so. So by looking at the genomes of Neanderthals, we can now really show that pieces of their DNA has made it into people who live today. So that Neanderthals live on a little bit, if you like, in people today, if your ancestor comes from Europe or Asia. So it's not everybody, but we can tell the, the, the people who migrated through the Europe and Asia, the northern part, could have a little piece. Yes, so everybody who comes from outside Africa have pieces of Neanderthal DNA in them, whereas people in Africa do not. Now, remind us, 40,000 years ago, some band of people left Africa, emerged out, and that's really where everyone else came from today. Um, and they, when they made it up into Northern Europe, that's where the Neanderthals were. Yes, so our best model for how this happened was that when modern humans emerged in Africa, they spread, of course, not only in Africa, but also out of Africa. And they then have had to pass by the Middle East. And we know there were Neanderthals in the Middle East at that time, 40, 50, 60,000 years ago. And those people there, if they then mated with Neanderthals and became the ancestors to everybody outside Africa, so they sort of absorbed a little bit of DNA from Neanderthals and then carried it with them when they spread across the world. So that we find Neanderthal DNA today in people not only from Europe and Western Asia where Neanderthals have existed, but also in Native Americans or in people in Southeast Asia or in the Pacific, even places then where Neanderthals never existed. It was carried through other people getting there. Yes. Now, George Church was here, the famous uh, Harvard geneticist, and he says, I've got even more Neanderthal in me. Yeah, take a look at me. <laughs> you know, so there's variations as to how much you might have in you. There's a little bit of variation. It's not that much variation. In Europe, it's in the order of 1% or so of the DNA of any individual. It's slightly more, actually, in East Asia. And there are good evidence now that one mated at least another time with Neanderthals, perhaps in the Central Asia or so, when people migrated to the east. Now, the Neanderthals, they existed well before the Homo sapiens. Yes. So depending a little on how we define a Neanderthal morphologically from the remains of their bones, they appear something between three or 400,000 years ago in Europe and Western Asia. 
whereas modern humans appear somewhere between 100, 200,000 years ago and start spreading out of Africa something like 50, 60,000 years ago. My goodness, they started and they ended and we're still going. Yes, and they existed even longer than we have existed so far on the planet. Ah, lesson to us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so it sort of puts it in perspective with who is successful. Now, how long have you been trying to get DNA from Neanderthals? Well, so this really goes back to the early 80s when I, I started my PhD in molecular biology back in Sweden. Uh, I had previously studied Egyptology and thought I would become an Egyptologist and got disenchanted with that and went to medical school. But I was then aware that there were thousands and thousands of mummies of both animals and humans in museums from Egypt and started looking into if people had tried to extract DNA and replicate it in bacteria from these things. And as far as I could make out, no one had tried, so I started Dr. Savante Pabo directs the Department of Evolutionary Genetics at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. In 2010, his team was the first to reconstruct a nearly complete Neanderthal genome. This 2014 TechNation interview discusses his book, Neanderthal Man in Search of Lost Genomes. I'm Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, with the World Health Organization recognizing that long COVID is a reality, how is the biotech community, which gave us COVID vaccines, responding? I speak with Dr. Jeffrey Cleland, the president and CEO of Ashvatha Therapeutics. He talks about their drug development efforts to relieve long COVID. It affects 30% of those who contracted COVID, 70% of those who needed the ICU. Then Dr. Greg Frost, the chair and CEO of Exuma Biotech. You may have heard about the cancer treatment CAR-T, taking four to six weeks and suppressing the patient's immune system. Of the delivery methods Exuma is working on is a fast CAR-T, taking hours with no immune suppression. And then there's a second delivery method being worked on, programming a virus to produce the treatment protein needed. This is a simple injection placed under the skin. Finally, what's causing many of those California wildfires? It's a tragic story of an aging infrastructure. Wall Street Journal reporter Catherine Blunt is here today with California Burning, the fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and what it means for America's power grid. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Jeffrey Cleland. So many of us are now concerned about long COVID. 
There wasn't a definition for many, many months, if not years. I understand the World Health Organization has now officially come out with a definition. What is it? That's correct. It's actually now three months after you've had the infection. If you've had two months of persistent cognitive loss, um, loss of breath, inability to breathe, or in any kind of fatigue, and can't be diagnosed with any other symptoms, that's considered long-haul COVID. Do we know how many people have long-haul COVID? Based on retrospective data now, they're projecting that 30% of people that have had any type of infection have a chance of having long-haul COVID. 70% of the patients that have been in the ICU have a chance of long-haul COVID, so they're projecting that millions of people probably will have some form of long-haul COVID. That would be millions. That would be millions. But we can't predict who's going to get it. No. No, unfortunately. That's sort of a circumstantial. It was so bad you were in the ICU. That's, That's a not pretty a high probability, though. Seventy percent of the patients in the ICU. So. Yeah, that that is not a yeah. uh, that's not a symptom. That's a circumstance. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that's an environment. Yeah. Who's looking into this? Unfortunately, there's not many trials going on at all right now. But we're really focused on this because we think it's going to be an epidemic, and we really have a, a unique drug that could target very specifically the disease process, especially the chronic inflammation that's present. It's one thing to say, well, I. I have this brain fog or I have any number of of aspects of long-haul COVID, but what's going on in my body? What's going on is uh, we believe is chronic inflammation is present. After the virus has cleared your body, your inflammatory immune cells don't shut off. They're still active. They're attacking your tissues. They're attacking your brain. And so you constantly feel fatigue. You have shortness of breath. You have brain fog. You have all these side effects because these active, reactive inflammatory cells have not shut off. It seems to me it hasn't been around long enough to understand, well, will it shut off? How long will it take? We don't know a lot about this. Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. And that's why there's been so many studies following these patients. And there's clinics now set up all over the United States and all these academic institutions that were treating COVID patients that were in their ICUs that are now coming back into what we call long-haul COVID uh, clinics and being monitored. But they're always asking, is there a treatment for me? And there isn't anything for them, unfortunately. We're talking about inflammation, and this is inflammation in the brain? It's inflammation in the brain, but also other parts of the body, including your lungs and other parts of your tissues that cause you to have fatigue. um, So anything that is causing you to have the long-haul COVID, I mean, your symptoms, that is where the problem lies. So uh, how do we treat it? Well, our approach is actually uh, very specifically target those reactive inflammatory cells and turn them off. And they've been turned on chronically after the virus and the virus is gone, and now they won't shut off. If you think about leaving your lights on in your house, we want to turn those lights off. And so that's the idea behind our therapy is to turn those lights off. So now you're back to normal and you don't have that persistent fatigue, shortness of breath, or the brain fog. Well, in relative terms, it's relatively easy to get to the lungs. It's relatively easy to get to a lot of your tissues, but it's really difficult to get to the brain. That's correct. Do we have a drug that will treat this? What will? How do we treat it? There are drugs that can treat it. Um, the drug that we selected is actually one that's known to actually have a, a significant effect in shutting down reactive inflammatory cells, but it has to be given in enormous doses, and it's not very effective. It doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. And so when we couple that to our nanomedicine, we can actually deliver it across the blood-brain barrier. We can shut down very selectively just these reactive inflammatory cells, not only in the brain, but throughout the entire body. 
So when you say nano, that means really teeny tiny to me. That's exactly so right. <laughs> that's just it. It's like, we're going to take the medicine. <laughs> we're going to attach it to our little, little guys that we know can get into the brain. Exactly. So you might be fine treating it in other areas of your body. But if you want to get into the brain and this thing we call brain fog, mm-hmm. which is a result, right. you've got to have a way to get in. Right. All right. It's so like a guided missile. It's a guided mm. missile. It's a really teeny tiny <laughs> missile that goes, okay, yeah. we're going exactly. for there and yeah. we're getting across to the brain. Now, obviously, you've got to test this. I understand you're in phase two. That's the mid of the phase one, two, three trifecta. Phase two, you're you're in patients. Tell us about what what are the phase two study or studies? What patients are you dealing with? All of those things. So we're going into the sickest patients first. So these are the patients that have severe COVID. They're in the ICU. They have very few options for treatment. In our first part of our study, we demonstrated a doubling of survival of those patients, even though it was a small study. And more importantly to the brain fog question, we were able to show that a biomarker of that brain fog was significantly reduced and returned to normal from one dose of the therapy. So we're hoping we can translate that into long-haul COVID patients as well. If I understand what you just said, this uh, delivery of an approved drug into the brain actually reduced the symptoms that they were experiencing. We sent them to the ICU. Mm-hmm. That's correct, yes. And so it, it becomes a treatment. <laughs> you were, right, you were right. looking at long-haul COVID, and, and it almost became a, a treatment in a sense. And then you could see that, in fact, the inflammation was reduced. Yes, yes, we could see that. Yes. You got a lot of work yeah. to do here. Yes. <laughs> now, now, what are you going to do? You got, you break this down into first. We're going to check this, then we're going to check this. What are you going to check? Now? So the next thing is to go into just the long haul patients. So the ones that have this chronic inflammation, you know, the reactive inflammatory cells, and it's going to be a very rapid to enroll trial because, as I mentioned, there's potentially millions of patients that have this long haul as defined by WHO. And so, if we can enroll that quickly and show that it's beneficial, uh, we'll look forward to having discussions with FDA about moving quickly towards approval. Sometimes you have to get in there early to intervene. Once the long-haul symptoms have been set in and, and you've got these, these active inflammatory immune cells turned on high, if you will, mm-hmm. is there a chance they can't be turned off? Do we know that yet? So we don't know in, in humans yet, but we do in animals, and we've done quite a bit of work in multiple different animal models. And whenever there's an acute affection, infection and we treat with our therapy, it is like a light switch. Animals that normally would die, once they're treated, they survive. And so it, it really is if we can flip that switch off and turn those cells back to what they should be doing, which is protecting us instead of attacking us, then actually it is very successful. So you've got some real science Real science to to do here. But let's remember that you're in the uh, nanomedicine delivery market. (laughs) Right. You're really about this. What other kinds of medicines could you deliver to do what? So we have a second program that's also in a a mid-stage phase two trial to treat the back of the eye disease uh, with a, a dose actually that's like an insulin injection instead of a needle in the eye which is how they're all currently treated Ooh. because now it selectively targets the back of the eye and you don't have to worry about injecting it directly in the eye. And we are, we're already shown that it's extremely safe and we can shut down neovascular. Well, the, the problem with the eye, which is this vasculature that forms in the back of the eye, and if we could shut that off, we can actually prevent people from going blind. So I like this. Rather than injecting it where it has to go, which we've lived with since we had injections, you 
are able to put on the front of the medicine, your nanomedicine part, uh, here's where you go. There's the roadmap. Get over there. So you can just do it in your arm. Right. Right. Oh, I can think of everything. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of other medicines. Yes. yes. There's a lot of other things yeah. going on. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for coming in. And I must say, uh, this is really important. I hope you come back and keep us updated. Thank you very much for your time. I, I look forward to it. Dr. Jeffrey Cleland is the president and CEO of Ashvatha Therapeutics. Ashvatha is spelled Ash, A-S-H, that, V-A-T-T, ha, that's Ashvatha Therapeutics. More information is available at avttx.com. While new drugs to specifically treat long COVID are few and far between, Over 200 clinical trials have studied or are currently studying many aspects of long COVID around the world. Some are looking to better define long COVID, while others are designed to see if existing treatments might have some impact. This includes the use of prescription drugs approved for other uses, over-the-counter vitamin and mineral supplements, and homeopathic treatments. There are brain stimulation treatments as well as computer cognitive training. Comparative studies exist for those living with and without HIV, studies for those who suffer from COVID's cardiovascular effects, and one study looks to assess the effect of cannabis. Some trials are exclusively for females, others for healthcare workers, and several include or rather focus on children. In the United States alone, some 40 long COVID studies are actively recruiting, with eight more preparing to recruit. Globally, over 100 long COVID studies are actively recruiting, with just over 30 more in preparation. Wherever you are in the world, there may be a clinical trial near you. All of this information is available at clinicaltrials.gov. And in total, it signifies the exponentially growing effort to get a handle on understanding and treating long COVID. Again, the website is clinicaltrials.gov. When it comes to cancer, the treatment can be a daunting challenge in and of itself. Exuma Biotech is dedicated to speeding up the delivery of treatments, reducing side effects, and providing the most precise formulation of a drug possible. Dr. Greg Frost is its chair and CEO. Greg, welcome back to Biotech Nation. It's great to see you again, Maura, and this time in person. In person. I know. Who would have Can thought? you believe it? Can you believe it? I have to say that when it comes to new cancer treatments, I mean, our heads spin a little, but we just need them when we need them. In the case of CAR-T that so many people have heard of, it's a waiting list. They take your blood. They have to deplete your carpet bomb. They often say your immune system. You stay in the hospital. You wait four to six weeks. In the meantime, they take your blood. They genetically engineer it. They do all that stuff. They give it back to you. And in so many cases, it works. And there's even a waiting list for this. You're doing a number of different things. And I want to cover two today. The first is, like CAR-T, you think you can take, and you're actually uh, on your way to first in human here to say, we don't have to wait the six weeks. We can just take your blood 
and and treat it right away and give it back to you. Explain that. Well, it's a basic model, Maura, that being able to allow the body to do the expansion of the cells rather than doing it outside the body is very important for a number of reasons, but the most important of which we think is time because the time to treat for a patient that may have relapsed refractory disease is exquisitely important. So what we're doing with this is we take a virus-like particle that has instructions to find certain types of white blood cells that we want to modify and to expose that to blood and then to then re-inject that back under the skin. And so the advantage is the exposure time just takes about four hours for the two to find each other. Now, there's a lot of tests that we also do along with that to make sure that the product has the identity, potency, purity, and safety. But what we're really excited about is that that process could enable patients to get efficacious treatment faster. For anyone listening to this, it's like, you mean there is no four to eight weeks in the hospital? There is no depleting of my immune system? You know, it's like, yeah, we're talking about that. So you're about to enter phase one, which means you're, 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 you're right there. You've done all the enabling studies, as we say. You've been working with the FDA. So we'll be watching that. But, of course, nobody stops there. You guys are relentless when it comes to this cancer business, and uh, and that's what I want to talk about as well. This is very early, but let's get to this technology because it's different from the CAR-T approach, if you will. Like it, but different. We're calling this G-CAR. Mm-hmm. And now tell us what this is. How is that different? What is it doing? Well, we presented the first look at this uh at a cancer meeting in New Orleans in April. And it's something that we've been working on, particularly to see if the virus-like particles that we developed, rather than loading white blood cells outside the body to remodel them, if we could actually do it by putting the instructions from those virus-like particles directly into the body. And so to do so, You need to make sure you're getting to the right place, the right cell, and that you still make the type of cell type that you want. So what we have done is taking the rapid process where we modify these cells outside the body, and we've rather gone in and put that virus-like particle directly into the body and have found that they can find the right cells, they modify them, and they'll expand up and they turn into a T and natural killer-like cell that's very effective at removing the cancer target in the body. Now, these are all still in animals. They're in mice that have human bone marrow grafts in them. But it gives us a sense that we might be on the right track. Okay, so I'm going to say it my way and you can say, you're all wrong. Or you got it, you got it. Okay, standard CAR-T out there. You have to take the blood, you have to suppress the immune system. Four to six weeks, you're out there, they're amplifying the blood, they're genetically engineering it and treating it and giving it back to you. 
Excellent. The, for the for the first time out, now we're on to 2.0. You're taking that, but you have a way to do it much more quickly. And so you don't have to go through this, this four to six weeks immune system suppression, and you can get it right back in in a matter of hours. Okay, so that's what you're working on now. Now we get to GCAR. GCAR says, well, gee, we could actually just um, engineer some of these cells that we want. And you're saying, and it's a combination of a T cell and an NK cell. Now we've heard that. The T cell, well, it, it's very healthy for you. It kills all kinds of things that are bad. It's, that's the one that we like to, like to support here. If there's anything wrong with the cell, it basically says, no, you're not supposed to be here. And the NK cells are those natural killer cells, hence the NK. And we know those go after tumors. So it's a combination of those two. Now, those cells, are those the same kind of cells that a CAR-T or the faster subcutaneous CAR-T that you're developing are those the same cells that it's developing? It's actually a different type of cell. What's, what people are learning today is that the cells, the therapies that people have made so far of CAR-T are generally a mixture of two cell types, CD4s and CD8s. Now, those cells have shown very good, impressive activity against cancers, but what we found is that these cell types can give rise to very high levels of cytokines. And those cytokines have two challenges. One is that when they make your body develop a fever, you can make your blood pressure drop. It can give you neurologic toxicities and sometimes can end you up in the ICU. Now, it's a risk. Bad. It's a, it, they're bad, <laughs> but it's a risk balance people look when there's no other alternative. Now, what people have found from the NK cell types are that not only do they have an ability to naturally see some of these cancer targets in addition to what we've put into them for recognition, they also seem to do so a little bit more gently. They don't make as many cytokines, and they're kind of the quiet killers against the cancer cells. So the hope that we have is that we recognize that the science has got to be tested and the clinical trials have to really examine this from the safety side. But the hope is that if these cells are able to expand without giving that lymphodepleting chemotherapy and can do so to expand in the body without releasing those cytokines, we might be able to keep people out of the ICU that could happen when sometimes side effects happen and also stop them from getting infections, which can be really bad in the first couple of weeks of these therapies. And also, you're not starting by taking people's blood. You're Correct. just engineering these directly off the shelf. It is engineering in the body instead of outside the body. And we call that in vivo versus ex vivo, but we'll let in the you end, call it that. <laughs> it's about putting the instructions directly into the body. Directly into the body. So off yes. the shelf, the hope is here, off the shelf will work for everyone who needs it. Well, our goal is if this works, and there's still a lot of work to be done because that program is much earlier, but if that does work, it could make this a solution that could be used everywhere around the world and could be done in a very efficient way. Making new medicines requires patience, but at the same time, you have to remember that 
time is not something that patients have. So when we look at what people need, that's what we're trying to do is to go through and make sure that they're not waiting for us. Greg, you're always welcome on Biotech Nation. Thank you, and come back and see us soon. Well, have a great time for the rest of your bio, and it's been a lot of fun to see you. Dr. Greg Frost is the chair and CEO of Exuma Biotech. More information is available at exumabio.com. That's Exuma, E-X-U-M-A, bio, exumabio.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. The Biotech Nation podcast individually can be found at www.biotechnation.com and separately subscribe through your favorite podcaster, including Amazon. Podcasts of whole Tech Nation programs continue to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, Wall Street Journal reporter Catherine Blunt tells us about California burning, lessons, from our aging utilities about wildfires. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation. The National Interagency Fire Center, also known as NIFC, reports that during the first eight months of 2022, 7 million acres have burned in the United States. This figure is 40 percent higher than the 10-year average at this time, which is 5 million acres. At this recording, 14 uncontrolled fires are burning throughout the United States, only one of which is in California. Still, the lessons of California have relevance for all. Wall Street Journal reporter Catherine Blunt covers renewable energy and utilities, and she and her team were named finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. She's here today with California Burning, the fall of Pacific Gas and Electric, and what it means for America's power grid. Well, Catherine, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. 
All stories about crime are by their nature pretty darn interesting. You know, whodunits. What did they do or not do? Did they get caught? Were they made to pay? But with every whodunit story, you've got to lay out the scene, and that's where we're going to start here. No one anywhere is surprised anymore to get the news that there's a serious fire somewhere in California. But Few people outside California are familiar with PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, and many people inside California just think it sends them a bill every month. So what exactly is PG&E? What is its geographic extent? What are its assets? Who owns it? Who controls it? PG&E is a very large utility company. It uh, delivers electricity over the course of 70,000 square miles in northern and central California. It is an investor-owned utility, like many utilities across the country, which means it is a publicly traded company owned by shareholders. It's a little bit of a kind of a hybrid. Um, it's not like a, you know, not like Amazon that's only accountable to It's also a regulated entity that is overseen by the California Public Utilities Commission because it provides a critical service. And just for reference, how long has PG&E been in existence and how did it start? The earliest companies that were ultimately rolled up and acquired by what we know to be PG&E today date back to 1852 um, with tiny uh, companies popping up really to supply uh, gas to light street lamps and some of the you know the earliest forms of um, street lighting that we had and then once once um, you know uh, like some of the electricity pioneers began experimenting with different ways to deliver power in the late 1800s and early 1900s uh, that's when you really began to see these tiny power companies cropping up throughout California and. Um, there were two men in particular who did a lot to consolidate them and create what we know to be uh, PG&E today. Two men who did a lot in the creation of PG&E as we know it were John Martin and Eugene de Sabla. Uh, they saw great potential in consolidating the power companies that were uh, cropping up throughout Northern California, and they did a lot to build some of the first hydroelectric powerhouses in the state all aimed at supplying power to San Francisco, which was growing very rapidly at the beginning of the 20th century. Now, listeners, this isn't just a story of California. To be clear, when we talk about this utility, it enables a look at all utilities. And wherever you are, unless you're entirely self-sufficient, as we say, off the grid, a utility is providing you power. That might be gas, electricity, any number of things. And when we talk about utilities, one way to look at it is to break it down into power generation and power distribution. Major power generation is essentially found on any map. There's a, you actually referred to it earlier. There's a great Hetch Hetchy Dam in the High Sierra as one example. Um, but let's get to power distribution, often called the grid or the power grid. What does California's power grid look like? Or I would say the PG&E power grid look like? Sure. So uh, when you think about the grid, are two significant components. First is transmission. So they're the high voltage power lines that pick up electrons at the generating station, whether that's a natural gas plant or a wind farm or a solar farm. 
And then those those transmission lines run to, run to substations where the power is stepped down to lower voltages and distributed to homes and businesses. When you think about the grid in California, you know, Northern California is a challenging place. These power lines run through very forested areas and California for a number of years now has been a state in a state of very severe drought. And as a result, a lot of the, 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 the health of the forest isn't, isn't great. And there's tens of millions of dead trees. So if you have an issue with one of those power lines, something happens to cause it to fail. The consequences of a spark are, uh, are pretty great at this point. So besides how it's laid out, um, the tech nation rule of life in the high tech age in this regard is all technology fails. It's a matter of time and circumstance. And given its age, do we know the state of the power grid from a technological standpoint? And, and also, I guess it's time to talk about what we call inspection records. What are they and what story can they tell or not tell? Absolutely. So in California, there are many aspects of the grid that are very old. Transmission lines are a key example. Some of the transmission lines in Northern California are some of the first the country had ever seen. Um, electricity pioneers built these lines to carry hydroelectric power from the Sierra foothills. And, um, you, you know, there are towers that have been in place since then, since the 1910s, early 1920s. And the, the nature of the infrastructure is such that, you know, it's exposed to the elements, You've got um, windstorms, rainstorms, snowstorms, and the little pieces of equipment that keep the wires safely attached to their towers wear down with time, which is where inspections are critical. It's, it's incumbent upon the utilities to make sure that the lines can, can withstand these sorts of weather events and to make sure that they haven't been wearing out or showing signs of deterioration that come with age. And so uh, it's, it's critical to have an inspection program that can catch this sort of thing. And, you know, for a long time, PG&E, the inspection program that it employed on some of these older transmission lines was very much insufficient. Marginal, marginal, we say. <laughs> marginal. Marginal, yes, marginal. Is, is marginal. <laughs> and, uh, if there wasn't a problem, they'll say it was okay. If there was a problem, it was right there at the margin and it fell over. That's, that's right. Uh, that's, that's right. right. <laughs> that's right. Now, remembering now, and I always have found this a little confusing, that it's serving two masters. It's got to serve the state of California in terms of reporting to that commission, the people of the state, it's, it has to do that. But it also has to respect its shareholders and deliver shareholder value. So in the case of a normal company, you probably would have to dig to get its inspection records. But anything that's public, you should be able to get inspection records. Is it difficult to go back and look at what plan is in place and what data is available? It's difficult for a number of reasons. Um, one of the reasons is the sheer volume of information that the company puts out on any you know given year for any given reason. Um, and you know, despite the fact that it is a heavily regulated entity that 
is um, under the oversight of a number of different uh, agencies and other bodies, it doesn't have to necessarily post every inspection record that it has, um, or maybe even if it does, it's it's not. Um, it might not be readily in the public domain, so you have to perhaps do a little bit more digging or or requesting of documents. Um, that's not to say that I mean it's certainly an enormous number have come to light in the wake of some of the disasters that we've seen, but it is hard to track what a company of this size is doing on any given day or any given year. And I would bet that the older the technology, the more likely it is that we're looking at human inspection of technology as opposed to technology that can self-report its status. Yes. So PG&E and other utilities have certainly been doing more to uh, experiment with and deploy certain types of technology that um, you know, make it so that you, maybe you need fewer humans doing inspections. For example, I mean, maybe they're using maybe they're using drones, maybe they're using technology on the line to monitor for faults, to monitor for disruptions, to immediately shut off if there's a hazard detected. Um, but certainly, it's true that some of the older assets, uh, at least historically, haven't been outfitted with this kind of technology. So it was incumbent upon the people within the organization to go out and, and monitor its health. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Wall Street Journal energy reporter Catherine Blunt. She covers renewable energy and utilities, and she and her team have been recognized with such awards as the Thomas L. Stokes Award for Energy and Environmental Reporting and was named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. She is here today with California Burning, the fall of Pacific Gas and Electric, and what it means for America's grid. Now, there's money to be made providing energy, as even the, all those little companies all those years ago knew. Um, and, uh, and we have many stories of that from, from uh, Enron, uh, perhaps the signature st- story of uh, making money from power uh, and energy, down to, you know, the least shareholder. How does this or how did this affect how PG&E did its job? So utilities make money in a somewhat unusual way. They make an authorized rate of return on large capital investments that could be building a new power line or doing significant equipment replacement. That rate of return is determined by the regulator. Operations and maintenance expenses are treated differently. That just comes out of the bottom line. They do not earn a return on that. But that's the kinds of... um, programs, uh, that that includes inspection programs, that includes um, the sort of day-to-day activities needed to keep the infrastructure safe. And in an ideal world, you can strike a balance between these two things. Um, Certainly, you could argue that large capital projects often improve the safety of the system, Um, but it's a hard balance to strike. And Certainly, a number of utilities have had difficulty with this over the years, perhaps cutting expenses so that they have more money to invest in their large capital projects. And there's a substantial amount of evidence that's come out over the years that PG&E first had difficulty doing this within its gas division. It was cutting uh, gas maintenance and inspection costs at a time when it was really trying to prove itself to shareholders. 
And then there was also pressure on the expense side that emerged within the electric division at a time when they were also trying to, you know, deliver to Wall Street. Um, and ultimately, there were areas of the transmission system that um, weren't properly inspected for a long period of time. Well, now let's get to the burning part of your title, California Burning, and uh, 2018's most devastating and deadliest fire ever, the so-called campfire. Let's go there. Tell us about that. The campfire of November 2018 was California's deadliest and most destructive fire. It started early in the morning during a very severe windstorm when Hook holding up a wire attached to a transmission tower deep within the Feather River Canyon, which is in the Sierra foothills north of Sacramento, um, broke in half. The hook was about the width of a fist. It had nearly worn through after hanging for decades in the same place uh, subject to the elements. And that wire uh, arced against the steel structure of the tower and showered the dry ground with, with sparks and Within an hour, the fire was completely out of control. It destroyed the town of Paradise, a couple of surrounding towns, and 84 people died. Was it clear that this started the fire from the start? It was pretty evident from the start. PG&E recorded an outage on the line around the time the fire was reported, and the company did a midday aerial patrol and saw some damage to the line. Um, very shortly thereafter, state fire investigators were on the case, and within a matter of months, they determined conclusively that it was the transmission line that ignited it. So we see this devastation, you know, towns destroyed, homes destroyed, people dying. Um, who's responsible? This is a, this is sort of a state-controlled entity as well as shareholder control entity, and it's, of course, all organizations are run by humans. How did they determine who was responsible and what charges, if any, to bring? Right, right. So this is a very, you know, for better or for worse, it's a very complicated question. And the the, the fire ignited in Butte County. Uh, the local prosecutors there started on an investigation almost as soon as the fire started to try to arrive at this question of who was to blame. And they ultimately charged the company with 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter for its role in the campfire after determining that the company had been recklessly negligent in maintaining this infrastructure. That is to say, the company knew that the infrastructure posed a serious risk in this area and did almost nothing to mitigate it. That being said, the charges were against the company itself. They were not against any individuals within the company that may have had a role in allowing that to happen. And so... Corporate liability is a hard thing to understand. Um, PG&E has now been twice convicted on charges of failing to maintain its infrastructure. And in both cases, the charges were against the corporate entity and not individuals within the company. And in both cases, it was because it is a large organization in which decision-making is multi-layered and complicated and there's wide diffusions of responsibility. And it becomes very hard to point a finger at any one person and say, you are the one who allowed this to happen. It's uh, it's the the blame is is very diffuse, and so there has been a long history of mismanagement within this company. But there's also been a long history of 
um, insufficient safety oversight on the part of the regulator. Um, for a long time, the regulatory body was very focused on helping California achieve its uh, climate goals, which were you know, noble and well-intentioned and just procuring more wind and solar power to help reduce carbon emissions. But that was really where, um, where people within the regulatory body wanted to be. They didn't want to be within the safety division. It didn't have as much cachet and they didn't get you know, as much attention. And so for that reason, uh, that division was understaffed for a long time. And then there's also political pressures on a company like PG&E because, um, like I said, you know, the utilities were instrumental in helping to procure some of this new clean energy. And that um, was uh, a diversion internally as well. And so it becomes, it becomes difficult when you zoom out to assign blame. And um, PG&E is certainly at fault, but there are a lot of other factors that have played into these circumstances. Now, if an individual pled guilty to 84 counts of manslaughter, uh, they're going to prison. <laughs> That's it. That's it's right. too much. What happens if an organization pleads guilty and they pled guilty, the head of PG&E pled guilty to every single count as it was read? That's right. That was a very emotional moment. What happens to the organization? What does that mean? So a, a corporation by nature is considered a person under the law, but it can't go to prison. So there are a relatively limited number of options then for, for um, whatever penalty is levied. I mean, the obvious one is, is to fine the organization to extract money. Um, there's also been a push in the last couple of decades to have to do more by the way of uh, rehabilitation and have some sort of court appointed oversight of the organization to make sure it's not slipping back into potentially, you know, concerning habits. Um, so in this case, uh, it's interesting to consider that PG&E was convicted on federal charges of violating federal pipeline safety laws after a large gas explosion in 2010. Um, but it, you know, it ultimately paid the statutory maximum fine for those charges, which was something to the order of maybe, I think it might've been $6 million, <laughs> which is really nothing in the scheme of a company as large as PG&E. The judge overseeing that case ultimately sentenced the company to five years probation in which it submitted to um, the oversight of a federal monitor. Uh, but you know, that proved to be very difficult. <laughs> One stipulation of that probation was no more crimes. And then it ultimately was a, uh, convicted on 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter, one of the most serious crimes you can imagine. Um, and then in that case, what was remarkable was the prosecutors there offered to charge the company with arson instead of involuntary manslaughter if it were to pay $200 million, which was substantially more than the statutory maximum fine. But the company said, no, uh, that would be a problem for our investors will pay what amounted to about $3.5 million. And that was it. That was it. I'm a little in shock, the idea, and, you know, go forth and sin no more. However, you're sitting on a grid that's basically a century old. And, and so is everybody else in the United States and most places around the world. You have this much technology with this many spots miles and miles and miles of wires and towers and the whole idea that you might retrofit this or replace it. I mean, you, you can't agree 
to not sin again if you have a situation like that? It's a very daunting challenge. So some of PG&E's challenges in maintaining this aging infrastructure in an environment that's become increasingly flammable is, you know, in, in some ways it's especially acute within California, but you're also beginning to see similar challenges throughout the West. And, you know, certainly we've also seen other weather extremes, stress parts of the grid, whether that be hurricanes, which seem to be uh, occurring more frequently and with greater intensity, uh, you know, freak winter storms, like in the case of, of Texas, which caused a lot of power plants to fail. And so the grid is old and getting older. You have the prospect of more severe weather events as a result of climate change. One of the things we're collectively trying to do to address climate change is to electrify everything, add more electric vehicles to the grid, do more to electrify our homes, which means that we're collectively starting to put more demand on the system. And so the challenge for these utilities going forward is going to be how to how to upgrade the grid to account for all of these variables, the increased demand, the you know greater likelihood of some sort of disaster, and you know do it in a way that customers can handle because whether it be an investment or an expense on the utilities part, it's often ultimately borne by the customer. You note at the end of your book that there was a subsequent 21 fire, uh, the Dixie Fire, which became the largest single wildfire in California history, burning an area larger than the state of Rhode Island. I mean, it was incredibly huge and was felt in San Francisco, even though it didn't burn in San Francisco. Um, and it, too, was the the fault of PG&E. Um, what is the state of PG&E now? And, and what are the lessons that you came away with that we might all benefit from? Sure. So the fire started in July of 2021 when uh, it, was a, it was a hot day, it was very dry, and a tree fell on a tiny distribution line uh, not far from Paradise, which was destroyed during the campfire. PG&E took a long time to respond to the incident. Um because they didn't realize the severity of it. And then ultimately, when they arrived, the, the, the person assigned to the, the issue realized there was a fire underneath the line. And for a period of time, it looked like it was contained, but it really wasn't. It spread very fast. And like you said, it became the second largest fire in California history. You know, we talk about what it means to penalize a corporate criminal. PG&E has incurred a great deal of financial liability as a result of these disasters over the last several years, not to mention notoriety and the total loss of trust among customers and regulators and the like. And as a result, it's never been more aware of the risks throughout the system. And it's been working very hard to try to address them. There's a new leadership team. Uh, there's a new CEO who came in six months before the fire that we're talking about now. And she got out into the field and saw what our gargantuan task it was to be constantly working to keep trees away from lines. They don't start fires. And then, you know, July rolls around and the second largest fire in California history starts as a result of a tree touching a wire. And it was that moment that she decided to announce that the company was going to do something completely different, which is to underground 10,000 miles of wire. It's not an easy thing to do costs a lot of money. There's a lot of challenges associated with it, but 
it would totally change the risk profile of the service territory. You, these lines would no longer be liable uh, for starting fires. And I think that the bigger takeaway there is that we are moving into a period in which we're going to have to rethink the way we operate this system. And it's going to look a little bit different region by region, depending on what the risks are. Um, but it, it's it, this grid was built for a different era of electricity demand and a different era of climate risk. And now that's changing. And so the smart utilities are going to get ahead of this and try to figure out what changes are needed. And they might be wholesale changes. And that's not to say that they're easy. And that's not to say that it's cheap. It's neither of those things. But I think that the longer term consequences and expense will be much greater if it isn't addressed now. I keep thinking about those old movies, some of which are just some of which are just movies that were made that, you know, showed what America looked like on the road in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, and some were documentaries. Uh, it's, you know, we had two lane roads all over the country, everywhere. Yeah. And right next to them were, you know, here they were the power lines and often just one line two lines at best, just wove the country. That's how we electrified the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, the idea that that's just wrong. <laughs> Those have to go underground. And let's start with the ones in the, in the woods. It's just wrong. Yeah. We, have, we have a different design. We got to deliver this differently. And of course, with technology, there are many, many ways we can address this problem. But yes, but uh, we've, we've gotten to the end of the road here. In the meantime, it's underground, underground underground you know and I, I can i can hear certainly that. in the west Ka certainly in the west <laughs> certainly in the west Catherine. so i so enjoyed your book there's there, we didn't really talk about the people there's so much about the people and who did what and all these kinds of things and uh, so it doesn't serve your book well that way but uh, we certainly did the uh, showed you it was a who done it <laughs> and, and it's a big thing, landscape and it's for so much so many things so Catherine, i do hope you'll come back and see us again i would love to be on again thank you so much for having me my guest today is wall street journal energy reporter Catherine blunt her book is california burning the fall of pacific gas and electric and what it means for america's power grid it's published by portfolio penguin a division of random house for Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.